gazing on your beauty and meditating on the Lord's perfections. This one raging desire is in my spirit. I want to see God. We're going to start tonight in Romans 1, verse 21. If you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there. Romans 1, verse 21. <laughs> We're gonna let uh Alita's creepy Bible reading. We're gonna reverse all this point of microphone in that direction. Why is that so creepy? <laughs> Romans 1 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. In other words, they had knowledge of who God was in existence, but they failed to respond rightly. They failed to worship God. As such. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed, this is talking about the collective humanity, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That is a horrible exchange, guys. That is a terrible exchange. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even though women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and in the same way that men also abandoned natural relations with women, and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So that they do what ought not to be done, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's heavy. But I don't know if you caught the progression. At the root of sin is idolatry. And here's what I want to put forth for you today. Idolatry is not only when we bow down to shrines and statues or make sacrifices to non-existent deities. And often you've probably heard messages preached on one when you put God or other things in front of God. I'm not even going to talk about that tonight. But idolatry can also take place when we entertain and hang on to wrong and low views of who God actually is. I believe that there's a type of idolatry plaguing the church where we are entertaining wrong and low views of who God is. A low view of God can also be looked at as an inadequate view of who God is. A.W. Tozer once said that a low view of God is the cause of a thousand lesser evils. I believe that the church is in need of few things more than a right view and a high view, a lofty view of who God is. And preachers will stand up and preach on the knowledge of God. So let's go back. And we're going to trace this root issue through Romans 1, starting in verse 21. Where it says, 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, so they knew God, but they failed to glorify Him or give Him thanks. Again, they failed to worship Him. And therefore, their minds became useless. Their hearts were darkened. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. The exchange was made, the glory of God, for created things. The glory of God is what you were made for. Whether people realize it or not, it is the deepest itch, the deepest yearning, the deepest scratch of their heart. And the only thing that will ever truly satisfy. So we gave up what leads to ultimate fulfillment for created things. And therefore, the progression, verse 24, God gave them over their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. This exchange, the immortal God for created things, led to unnatural desires. That's the progression. Because we took God out of his rightful place, the rightful order, and everything that cascaded after that led to wickedness and depravity. Unnatural desires are a.k.a. sinful desires. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So the truth about God for a lie. So now two horrible trades, if you're paying attention, have happened. God's glory was exchanged for created images, which includes self, and the truth about God was exchanged for a lie. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile, this is the, the starting point, to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved minds so that they do what they ought not to be done. Again, the failure to retain the knowledge of God causes a cascading of wickedness and depravity. When you lose a right view of who God is, disobedience or choosing your own way just feels like option B instead of option A. Rather than saying, oh, there's a God who sees this situation from every possible angle. He's the most loving, benevolent, kind, and wise being in the entire universe. But I think I know better than that is the root of depravity. You substitute the right knowledge of who God is, but if you think he's a dictator in the sky, a puppet master, or just an old man looking to strike you down every time you make a mistake, that root issue of the wrong view of who God is leads to a thousand lesser evils. We need to restore a high view and a right view of who God is. Here's the thing. When I said that a low view of God and a wrong view of God can also be idolatry, it doesn't matter what name you use to call God. Aaron called the golden calves in the wilderness Yahweh. You can quote unquote say, God backs my opinion on this. But if you can't find it in here, and it wasn't reiterated by Jesus, it is quite possible you are using little g God as a pawn and an idol in your life to support your own end and your own agenda. We need a right view and a high view of who God is. I'd like to put forward, when did the God of the Bible become the God of our own inventions? When did the God who breaks boxes and stretches imaginations become the God who fits neatly within your own sense of reason and logic? 
Way to the gods whose thoughts are nothing like our thoughts, and whose ways are high above your ways, just as the heavens are above the earth. Come to mirror all of your own opinions, and never confront any of your ideas. When did God find himself on trial needing to explain himself to any one of us? When did we make God in our own image? When did you make a God who looked like and sound just like you? Versus seeking to know and reflect his heart. So Ephesians 1.17, which I mentioned earlier, I'm going to read it. But first I want to say this is an apostolic prayer. I want to awaken a generation to the apostolic prayers. These are the prayers woven throughout the epistles, the letters to the church. They usually start with, I, I'm continually praying for you. Every time I think of you, I pray this. Insert whatever it is. I keep on asking the Father of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would... Remember that the apostles were given, they were able to write canonized scripture. They had seen the resurrection. I'm not just talking about like a modern day apostle ascent. When I'm talking about the original 12 and the apostle Paul, who had seen the resurrected Jesus, who had been given a trust from him to establish early New Testament churches and set a precedent for what it looks like to follow Jesus in the present age. So when they were saying, I pray this constantly, that's an apostolic prayer, and it points to an apostolic burden. Which means it's a burden that God had put in their heart to pray continually because it's a big deal to God. Which means that when you're thinking about how do I pray God's will, you should be grabbing onto, studying, and leaning into apostolic burdens so that God's will can be done in His church and in your life. When Paul says in Ephesians 1.17, I keep asking, meaning that this wasn't a passing interest. It wasn't like I thought of you, Robert, the other day and I prayed this one time. But this is something I constantly bring before God the Father, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, some translations say the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Or some translations would say so that you can grow in the knowledge of God. God desires to have a church that is continually growing in the knowledge of who he is so that we can grow up into mature believers and represent him rightly. To an earth that desperately needs to know who he is. There's nobody else on earth. I'm not just talking about this room obviously. But outside the body of Christ. Who can tell the world who God is. Who else is going to tell the world who God is and what he's like. I mean I know that's a really simple question. But who walking the earth today can tell the world what God is like. New Age spiritualists can't do it. Muslims can't do it. Hindus can't do it. The people I talk to on college campuses who have some type of a la carte belief system that they made up can't do it. But born again believers with an indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God have the ability to tell the world what God is really like. And that's an amazing trust. So Paul prays, and I keep asking that you would grow in the knowledge of God so that more and more revelation can unfold in your life, leading to more and more worship, and the world around you can get a better picture of what God is really like. Major burden. 
And in the prayer that Jesus taught, the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, which Jesus wasn't just putting words in their mouth to pray, but priorities in their heart to care about. And the first priority was our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus wants you to know that God is in heaven and he's holy. God in heaven, holy. Needs to be braided on our eyes. God is in heaven and he's a holy God. First priority in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God is in heaven and he's holy. A.W. Tozer once wrote, if some watcher or holy one, he's talking about the living creatures and the angels who stand day and night in God's presence, who has spent his glad centuries by the sea of fire, were to come to earth, how meaningless to him would be the ceaseless chatter of the busy tribes of men. How strange to him and how empty would sound the flat, stale, and profitless words heard in the average pulpit from week to week. And were such a one to speak on earth, would he not speak of God? Would he not charm and fascinate his hearers with rapturous descriptions of the Godhead? And after hearing him, could we ever again consent to listen to anything less than theology, the doctrine of God? Would we not thereafter demand of those who would presume to teach us that they speak to us from the mount of divine vision or remain silent altogether? There's this passage in Job, Job 42, if you want to look there, I'm going to give some context to it while I flip there myself. We know Job for his suffering, but at the beginning of the book of Job, it's made very clear that Job is a righteous man who knew the Lord well. In fact, it was his righteousness that prompted the testing. He had, through his righteousness, caught the eye of God. Imagine being so righteous that God in his heavenly counsel is calling to those who stand in his midst. Have you ever seen someone like Job who so wholeheartedly committed to me? And that's what actually prompts the testing in his life. And Job begins to complain in a sense to God. He begins to question God's sense of justice. He begins to question why is this happening to me, God's treatment of him. And he begins to really cry out, I wish I could just have a hearing with God. And at the end of a very long dialogue with his friends that are trying to tell him, no, Job, you're wrong. He's like, oh, I just want to talk to God. But then God shows up and begins to cross-examine Job. I want you to picture for a second that the Lord Almighty shows up and he cross-examines you. God has you on trial. And he starts to ask a series of questions. Where were you? When I spoke into a sheer... And vast expanse of darkness and the earth was born. Where were you, Job? When I spoke and the first light shone in the sky, where were you? When I said thus far and no further to the waters, where were you? And he keeps going, keep going. And then he switches the tone of his questions and he starts to ask, can you, can you, can you, can you? And Job's response in Job 42 then the Lord replied to Job, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Another translation, the New Living Translation says, who is this who questions me in ignorance? 
Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Here's what I want you to get, verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job, a righteous man, perhaps the most righteous man walking the earth at that time, who knew God well and walked in fellowship with him. says, I thought I had heard of you, but now I've seen you, and I didn't know you at all. I thought I had a high view of you, and every question you ask, you can feel Job getting smaller and smaller, and just getting ruined, and just sinking into a pit on the ground. He said, I'm presently repenting in sackcloth and ashes, and God had just got done questioning him. And Job's now speaking. It means that as God is speaking to Job, and calling forth his great might and his creative power, Job is being reduced to a heap of rubble on the ground. A righteous man who thought he knew God, and he goes, I have heard of you, but now I've seen you. And I'm trembling. You're bigger and stronger and more mighty and holy and awesome than I ever thought. I despise myself for what I've spoken. I've spoken ignorance. I had no idea, God, who you really are. And my prayer tonight is that we would have that revelation. I thought I knew you. I had heard about you. I heard about your great faith. But now I've seen you. And I'm ruined. But now I've seen you. And everything else. As Robert said, it's nonsense. I have heard other men talk about you. Oh no, they weren't even close. I heard people sing about you and your majesty, and sometimes I thought honestly it was too much. I heard people give flowery speech and great adjectives, and I thought this is all too much. But now I've seen you. And it fell way short. I'm reduced to sackcloth and ashes, and I must repent of my low view of you. Yeah. That's what I want you to get tonight. Job, the most righteous man on the earth at that point, once he saw God, he had to repent and say, I didn't see you rightly. You're majestic and awesome and holy, the high and lofty one who makes the heavens his throne and the earth his footstool. The universe has to stretch to contain his glory. Corey Russell says that God has to stoop to get into the program that he created. I was talking to someone the other day who thought that the throne room and the living creatures were all a little bit too much. And why would God create those things? Because if God puts anything else at the center of the universe, it will collapse on itself. There's no other absolute. Everything is relative to God. He's the only absolute. God and his kingdom, everything else is relative to God. So if you put something relative at the center of the universe, it collapses. So God was being kind when he made himself the highest thing and the object of worship in the throne room. Because anything else in five years into eternity, you're bored. John Piper would say it this way, God loves his glory more than he loves you. Because for him to love his glory is for him to love you. Because there's nothing greater than him. 
God is not being egotistical in creating us to worship Him. We are looking at this thing upside down. We're looking at it from Earth's vantage point. We need to get heaven's perspective. I want you to imagine that a man has grown up visiting his grandmother's house. Maybe this even describes the situation you had when you were growing up. As he walks to the room he stays in, there's a picture in the hallway of those fat-winged baby angels. You don't know what I'm talking about, playing harps in the clouds. And he likes this picture. It's comforting to him. And he thinks someday I can't wait to go and be with those angels. He's not wrong for that. It was comforting to him. But let's just imagine that one day he stumbles into Ezekiel 1 and has his own open heaven vision. <laughs> and he discovers the angels of the Bible. That way their wings flap and they've got six of them. <laughs> it sounds like thunder. And when they move back and forth, it sparks like barrel. They're on fire. Inside and out, they're covered in eyes. And they're huge and terrifying. I've got a tattoo on the inside of my arm with a picture of Samson. It's, it says, terror laced with glory and sheer wonder. And it, it's a reminder that God is the ineffable. He's the one that you just can't even give words to or descriptions to. And it comes from the account in the message translation when the angel shows up and announces to Samson's mother that she's going to have this Nazarite child who's going to be a judge and help uh, bring holiness back into the land. She goes, wait, let me go get my husband. What's your name? And he says, it's sheer wonder. You can't even know it. And then he does come back and the, the husband, Manoah, gets to see the angel. And his description given in the paraphrase, the message translation of the Bible is, he looked like terror laced with glory. God is not just a little bit above the angels. God is eons and eons above the angels in glory, splendor, and power. So if that's the description given to the angels, how glorious must God be? And here's the thing. After that man stumbles into an Ezekiel 1 open heaven vision, he's going to have to forsake his little views of fat, baby, chubby, winged angels. It won't be sufficient. He will no longer be pleased looking at that picture. He's going to demand more. He's going to want to go deeper. His picture of heaven won't be ruined. It will be restructured to fit the reality. And I think he'll be more excited to see the one that those mighty ones, those burning ones, are constantly attending to and staring at. I talk and pray frequently about the burning ones, the four living creatures who occupy the space closest to God's throne, not because I'm some freak who likes angels. I want to see what they see. They're covered with eyes inside and out, and they never leave the room. They're created, so I don't know how far back God created them, but I know that they go at least back to the Isaiah 6 encounter, which was about 3,000 years ago. So I, let's just say it started there. And Michael and Gabriel are standing in the room. They just got their arms crossed. I imagine they're like bodyguards. I don't, I don't know. I might have the wrong view. I don't think they say a whole lot. They just wait until God speaks. And then they run to do whatever he says. 
But let's just imagine, and this is imagination, this is not scriptural, but the concept is that all of a sudden God has said, today the living creatures will be born. And the first day, those wings start taking off, and they're circling the throne, and they're just staring at God. Hold! And the temple shakes, fills with smoke. And the next one gets promoted by the first one. Hold! And this goes on for 24 hours. And Michael and Gabriel are saying, yeah, that's right. <laughs> 24 hours of holy, holy, holy. Day two. Hold! 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 Day three. Hold! 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 This has been going on for 72 hours. They have not stopped. They have not rested. They haven't closed their eyes. They haven't even let down onto the ground. The wings stay aflight. They're fueled by the majesty and the vision of God. They never stop. Never stop. Day or night, unceasing worship. They are enamored with the beauty of the one seated upon the throne. You know the Bible sometimes just has to describe the context of the throne room? Because God is so indescribable, they just have to describe all the awesome things surrounding Him. And then God is just shrouded in mystery. And just described as light and fire. The burning one. But we know he's seated upon the throne because he's reigning from eternity. And imagine that thousands and thousands of years have gone by. It was crazy at hour 72. But now we're talking thousands of years later. They haven't stopped singing. And they're not chained to the throne. There's no ankle chain binding. They can leave the room at any point, but they choose not to. What are they going to find more fascinating after they've seen that? What are they going to find more fulfilling outside that room once they've seen that? I'm not trying to become an angel, but I am trying to see what they're seeing. I do want eyes to see like they see. I want to be fascinated and enamored with the glory of God. Ezekiel 1, I want to read you the description that's given to God there in this heavenly vision. We talked about the angels. Let's talk about the ones seated upon the throne. I'm going to flip to a couple different passages, and I want these to just provoke your heart. I want these just to suck you into the majesty of God. I'm not going to try to exposit them. I'm not going to try to explain them. I just want these word pictures to hit your heart and to bring you into a right view of who God is. Ezekiel chapter 1. Starting in verse 25. Then came a voice from above the vault, over the heads, over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. And above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. How many times do they have to use the word like? It's because all of our words, all of our descriptions will always fall short. So we just have to find majestic things that we know of to try to describe him. But I promise you, the day that you arrive, the majesty is going to be far greater than you can possibly comprehend. I think the air is going to be sucked out of the room for so much. Oh, it tastes that the Lord is good. Isaiah 6. Flip backwards with me. Isaiah 6. I'm just going to read these encounters. Isaiah 6. 
Remember, this was a prophet, just like Job. This was a righteous man, a man already being used mightily by God. He thought that he knew the Lord. He thought he had seen the Lord. But the real encounter, similar to Job, I had heard about what you were like. I had received your prophetic words, but now I've seen you and I'm reduced to ruin on the ground. Woe is me, I'm ruined. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That's victory after victory from those he defeated, sewn together, filling the room. And if his robe is that big, how must, big must the one seated upon the throne be? The train of his robe, the history of his victories, fills the temple. And above him were seraphim, those living creatures, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts of the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Daniel 7. Wow, I flipped right there. That's awesome. Daniel 7. <laughs> Never happens. Starting in verse 9. We talked about this last time we were together. It's worth repeating. As I look, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days, a.k.a. the Eternal One, from everlasting to everlasting, the one whose beginning is past searching out, took his seat. Man, just imagine that scene. Heavenly throne set in place. And the Ancient of Days walks in the room and sits down. His clothing was white as snow. He's pure. His head was white like wool. It speaks to his wisdom. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. He's seated upon a throne that's on fire, with wheels of fire. It's a chariot of fire, and there's a lake of fire in front of him. That's awesome. I would say that's majesty. That's kingly beauty, such as the world has never seen. And thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. I'm going to skip over to verse 13. And in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of David. Coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not end, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's Jesus. Which is a perfect transition point. Because I was asking Pastor Terry, you know, this was, I didn't have notes like I normally have because a short period of time, the kind of audible, I felt like I was supposed to preach something different as of yesterday morning. And I was like, hey, I just need a verbal process with you, and I'm a pretty talkative guy, so she's probably going great, we're going to be here for hours. And we kept it to about 10, 15 minutes. Like I just got to get this out. There's this fear in my heart. I said, if God most fully chose to reveal himself through Christ, in the lowly position of a human body, and we're given way more chapters about Jesus walking the earth than we are about these heavenly visions, I don't want to minimize the, the incarnation, what Jesus came to do and how he revealed God to us. But rather than even try to explain it, I'm going to try to just hold up the tension. And I believe that a high and lofty view of God will actually make you appreciate every aspect of Jesus in the flesh a billion times more. That's so good. It doesn't, it was glory concealed. Billy Graham used to use the analogy of if we were going to save an ant colony, 
you know, or speak to them. We would have to become ants to interact with them. And God stooped in his kindness so that he could interact with us in the person of Jesus, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. John 1.14. John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling amongst us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, the virgin birth, the incarnation. This will make me love Jesus. But I want to give you a picture first. John 2, 19, just a chapter later. Jesus says, you can destroy this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they get indignant and they say, it took us 46 years to build this temple, and you say in three days you're going to rebuild it. And then John adds a little byline and says the temple he was referring to was his body. All throughout the Old Testament, Jesus came at the end of the Old Testament because God had to create a context for him to come in the fullness of time so we would understand who he was when he came. The temple always represented the place where God's glory tabernacle and dwell amongst men. It's why on the day that Solomon uh, well, let's go back to Exodus 40 when Moses set up the tabernacle based on what I believe was an actual vision of the throne room that he had on Mount Sinai. When it said that he was given the instructions for what the temple was supposed to look like, I don't think he got a blueprint. I think he saw the throne room. And then God said, create a replica of this on the earth. That'll make Leviticus more interesting. Why do we know that? Because it talks about the elders, the 70 elders who went up and they ate a covenant meal with God on the crystal sea. The throne room descended. And on the day that the tabernacle was set up, Moses, who was used to going into the tent of meeting, said that the glory so filled the tabernacle he couldn't go in. There was such a weighty presence he couldn't go in. And then David had this raging desire. This is why God makes covenant with David and says there's going to be a king who's going to come through your line. He says, I'm living in luxury, but you live in a tent. Your daughter of the covenant is living in a tent. Can I make a house for you? God says, no one's ever even asked me this before. 2 Samuel 7, you're not going to be the one to do it, but I'll let your son do it. And David, his desire is for God to tabernacle with men, for God's glory to be on the earth. So David starts hiring hundreds and thousands of musicians, the tabernacle of David, to minister to the presence of the Lord 24-7. For the entire reign of his kingdom. Why do you think in the Psalms, David saw every aspect of Jesus coming? The incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. There was such a prophetic spirit swirling in the way that they were ministering to the Lord and to his presence in the earth. It was an unparalleled time. But Solomon, his son, and he amassed great resources during his life. He said, even if I can't be the one who's going to do it, I'm going to get all these resources ready so that when the time comes and Solomon builds a temple, he'll have everything he needs. And Solomon builds a temple, they consecrate it, and you know what happens. It's filled with the glory of the Lord. And the priests can't even go in and perform their normal functions. So the temple always represented the place where God wanted his glory to dwell. And then you have Jesus. Calling himself the temple is the glory of God walking amongst men. 
glory concealed so they didn't recognize it unless the Holy Spirit gave them eyes to see. No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father gave them eyes to see, they didn't get the glory. Are you following me? So I want to take just a moment to consider Jesus. Can we do that? Because to know Jesus is the presence of the knowledge of God. And if you feel familiar with the different things I'm going to talk about, I'm going to say press deeper. A million years into eternity, you'll be as interested as the first day you arrive, more interested. Consider the incarnation. We just talked about that. Consider the life of Jesus. The fact that the God who dwells in unapproachable life reached out and touched lepers. Stooped in the dirt and picked up a woman caught in adultery. We don't praise anyone for washing feet when they're human. But if God who dwells from eternity comes down and washes feet, that's mind-blowing. Consider the life of Jesus and what he did. What were the angels' perspective on Jesus washing feet? Remember how offended Peter was? When Jesus got up to wash his feet, he goes, no, 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 you're not going to do this. What do you think Gabriel and Michael and the four living creatures were thinking when they saw Jesus? They probably lost their mind. Because they had a perspective of how high he came from to do that. They were thinking the rabbi was just giving a good lesson. But they saw that he went light years down and stepped onto the earth to wash feet. And they were losing their mind. The high and lofty view has everything to do with how much you appreciate Jesus and His humility and His meekness and His obedience even unto death. I want to spark fresh love for Jesus because I think He's amazing. Consider the crucifixion. The 39 lashes that God let man draw blood Picture that right now. The cat of nine tails, a leather whip with spikes built into it, and each time it cut across his back, he would grab a measure of flesh and pull it out. And they thought they were winning, but with every drop of blood, it was our healing, our redemption, our atonement, it was our wholeness and your forgiveness. Fresh revelation of the blood of Jesus. The crown of thorns that pressed into his head as they mocked him. I looked it up in Luke 22 or 23. Eleven, if you're being uh, conservative, eleven different instances of verbal mockery and insulting and accusation leveled against Jesus. From Gentiles, from the Jews, from bystanders, from those being crucified with him, from criminals, from the high priests. Ministering in his temple, from the Sanhedrin, from the Pharisees, studying his book. Fresh appreciation and love for the man Jesus. Three times he heard Peter deny him. Wounds from a friend. He turned around. He was close enough that he turned around and he looked Peter in the eye and threw the God who lives in unapproachable life, bearing your sin 
and your shame. Fresh love, fresh appreciation for the crucifixion, what it secured for you, what it cost you, what he forfeited, stripping equality with God, flipping suit, so that he could do that. Here's what I'm on. We're going to get ready to close here in a second. It was God's wisdom. This will give you fresh appreciation for the wisdom of God. I wish we could spend all night just pressing to the divine attributes of God, but we would be here for eons. <laughs> this is one example of God's wisdom. He used the enemy's instrument of death as the gateway to salvation. What appeared foolishness to men was the wisdom of God. And here's the beauty of it. The high and lofty view of God, how high he is, the fact that it levels men like Job, righteous men, men more, and Isaiah, men probably, let's just be honest, more righteous than you and I. Then it levels them to a heap of ruins on the ground and they think that they're just destroyed and ruined. He used the enemy's instrument Flip its purpose upside down as the gateway to salvation to accomplish two purposes. One, no one will ever be able to boast in his presence. Magnifies his glory. Because not one can come to him but through what Jesus did. Which means they have to confess that they're a sinner and need of his grace. So they receive the gift free. Magnifying, glorifying God even free. But now we have access to his glory. So it magnifies his glory. The high and lofty view of God, unapproachable light, level you to a heap of ruins on the ground. He's going to use an instrument of death as a gateway to salvation so that you can never boast in his presence, but you have access to the Lord. In Ephesians, it talks about the manifold wisdom of God. That when the angels consider the cross, all the things they've seen him do, he's created galaxies and more stars than our grains of sand on the shore. But when they looked at the cross, it was the one that caused them to lose their mind. It was the one that shamed the powers and the principalities, the demonic forces. And throughout all ages, it's the one that's going to give God great glory. Man. I want to close by just considering these last two, the resurrection and the ascension. The resurrection, God's vindication, the last foe, death and sin were swallowed up in victory, purchased our redemption. Consider his resurrected glory. Consider Jesus and his new body. It's not that he went from glory to glory. God can't get more or less glorious. He's the unchanged glory. But we can get deeper revelations of his glory. And on the other side of the resurrection, he now has a body that can eat fish and drink water. And not just empty out of he's not a ghost, but he can walk through walls. He just appeared and disappeared in rooms with disciples. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, are you guys interested in Jesus? Because I find this just mind-blowing. And worthy of worship and praise and adoration and much fascination. Here's what's even crazier. That resurrected body that can walk through walls still bears his scars. The scars are part of his resurrected form. Yeah. So he can walk up to Thomas and say, put your fingers in my nail-scarred hands, the hole in my side, and I'm going to bear these scars through eternity so that you'll always remember the kind and the merciful and the gracious. Compassion.
compassion, so they would call it. It will bear witness in my resurrected body throughout all ages of the type of God that I am. That I define love. The love wins campaign is a perversion. I define love. Any justice achieved outside of God is a perversion. Because God is perfect justice. He's the fountainhead. Everything flows from him. You take him out of him, you'll always end up with something lesser than what God intended. That's why every lesser evil flows from a low view of God. When you have a high view of God, nothing but purity and wisdom and righteousness and goodness flow down from the source of who God actually is. And everybody's trying to achieve God's ends without God's involvement. And it's a perversion, and it will never work. That's why your kingdom come is the only answer for humanity. The last one, the ascension. Talked about this last time. It still gets me amped up. He went up, guys. All the way up. And when he thought he couldn't go any higher, he kept going. And all the powers and all the principalities had to watch as he ascended, leaving a crowd of captives. That should get you excited. And took a name higher than every other name and sat down at the right hand of the Father until he comes again. That's the Daniel 7 moment where he walked into the presence of the Ancient of Days and received an everlasting kingdom, eternal dominion, all power and sovereignty. Consider the return. Jesus is coming back in glory such as the world has never seen. This time it's not going to be concealed. The radiance of his majesty, the light coming from the countenance of his face, will light up the sky like lightning, but you won't only see it if you're staying in Jerusalem. It says the whole world will see it. I don't even know how that works in, in a sphere. God knew it was a sphere when he said that, but somehow everyone living everywhere is going to see the sky light up because he's that magnificent. The majesty is going to light up the sky, and every eye, whether you believe in God or not, whether your hope was in a second coming or not, will look upon him, and those who pierce him will mourn. Consider the returning glory of Jesus. It was glory concealed the first time. It will be glory revealed such as we can't imagine the second time. John, the beloved, the one who leaned back as Kenji was singing earlier against the chest of Jesus, when he went up and got the heavenly vision of eyes like fire, hair white like wool, feet like burnished bronze, a golden sash, a sword coming from his mouth, voice like the sound of many waters, fell to the ground as though he were dead. Reduced to a heap of rubble on the ground, just like all those other really righteous gods. He goes, I thought I knew you. I walked those three years with you. I even saw your resurrected body. I was in the room when Thomas touched your hands, but I never saw you. I never saw his end before. But then he saw the rider on the white horse, his name was Faithful. With the armies of heaven riding behind him. His robe dripped in blood. This time it's not his blood. All the evil and satanic and demonic enemies that he's trampled. In the wine press of God. Do you know that, Jesus? Do you know Revelation, Jesus? Do you know Second Coming? Armageddon, Jesus? He is the most beautiful. 
resplendent, majestic, interesting, fascinating, worthy being in the whole universe. I'm going to end with this if the band wants to come back up. The holiness of God has captivated the attention of the mighty ones, the burning ones, the holy ones, who occupy the space closest to the throne for as long as we can imagine. But when Jesus came up, in Revelation 5, they switched their song, and they start singing about the worthiness of Jesus. When they sing worthy, they're not just saying, you're a good God and we like you. He's taking the scroll, and what they're saying is there's none found able or capable or qualified. And when they say qualified, you think about what he's holding as the title deed to the earth. They're saying anybody else would be a hair too harsh or too lax. Someone else would lack the wisdom to administrate God's plans for the end of the age and the age to come. But you're worthy. You're the only one since the dawn of time found worthy. The beauty of Jesus. Come on, guys. He is magnificent. Awesome. Majestic. I want to provoke your heart tonight. We didn't even get to talk about Holy Spirit. For the sake of time, it's okay. I, I just want to whet your appetite tonight. It wasn't exhausting. To fall in love with Jesus all over again. The majesty, the beauty, the power, the holiness. Get a taste. Come on, just close your eyes right now. Just ask him for a taste. Oh, taste and see. Come on, let's feast on the riches of his glory. Get a taste. Just ask him to show. Even one aspect, one aspect, one tiny little morsel of one of his attributes. Put it on your tongue. Savor. That's worship. When you savor who God is, when you enjoy who God is, he receives that as worship. You don't have to say anything. You just enjoy it. Oh, your food and drink and the best meal I've ever 